Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. Uh, my guest today is Pamela Lyon. She's a visiting research fellow at the Southgate Institute for Health, uh, which is in Adelaide, Australia, part of the University of South Australia. And we're going to talk about the biology of cognition, which should be super interesting. So, Pam, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me, um, so what do you mean the biology of, of cognition, or how would you describe your research? My, re- my research started uh, as a result of trying to do a a cross-cultural comparison of some philosophical propositions that were grounded in the in accounts of mind. And on the one hand, I had Tibetan Buddhism, and on the other hand, I was going to be using uh, Western cognitive science. And to my dismay, I found that there was no there there on the Western cognitive science side. There were lots and lots of ideas. There were lots and lots of statements about it being, you know, it being part of the brain and computational and this and that, but there wasn't any, there, there wasn't, I couldn't find anything that said, this is what cognition is as a biological function. And I figured it had to be a biological function first because that's where it is found naturally. And yet most of the concern at the time seemed to be, you know, whether robots were cognitive and, you know, could, you know, was, was, was a thermostat cognitive and was a guided missile cognitive and, you know, weren't these all confounding instances. And I just 
I frankly couldn't believe it. And so I had my thesis then became finding out how we got in the state that we're in and the kinds of choices that had been made in characterizing cognition. And it seemed to me that there were two and one was too broadly considered. One was that cognition was something that was paradigmatic to human beings and that whatever we, however we were going to characterize cognition, it was going to have to square pretty much with not only what we knew about um, human cognition, but what we internally intuited about human cognition, which I found a bit dicey. And so I thought, well, the other way has got to be by starting in biology and looking at what the living state requires such that it might, re- it might need cognition. Are you saying people were, were just saying, well, everything's cognitive to just kind of throw no. rocks in no. your face? Or, or what do you mean? No, it started out, um, okay, there are two historical periods that are actually relevant here. One is before behaviorism and the other is after behaviorism. Before behaviorism, nascent psychologists in Europe and North America were taking Darwin very seriously and were looking for the roots of cognition in very simple um, animals like paramecia and bacteria such as they could be imaged and and very, very simple animals. And after behaviorism, there was a long period when very simple animals, uh, organisms went completely out of out of fashion. And when the cognitive revolution started in the mid 50s, it was all about humans. It was all about human computers and and their their analogs in computing machines. It was all about human decision making and that sort of stuff. So it, everything was, was pitched at a very, very high level. And so you couldn't necessarily even say for the longest time that ants were cognitive or bees were cognitive or, or, or anything like that. It took a long time, I mean, decades for us to even come at that. Now it seems like a done deal. And of course, well, duh, it was always like that, but it wasn't always like that. Ask anybody who tried to bring uh, cognitive ethology uh, the study of animal behavior into cognitive science in the late 19, uh, in the late 20th century in the early 21st century it was very very difficult well i was going to say that uh, right i guess descartes thought animals were machines and he you know, it was disgusting but he vivisected them while alive yeah. and just thought they're yeah. cries i don't know what he thought they were but yeah. and you know nowadays i mean uh, I, I'm asking if uh, people believe cells have some level of cognition and, you know, the responses they get, oh, no, you shouldn't anthropomorphize and that's not good, you know, and on and on. And on. So what's your experience currently with uh, the state of cognition and what people think could well, have cognition and what doesn't? Like how far down does it go, you know, in the, well, the web well, of the, life? The question, the question really is, as far as I'm concerned, is not how far down does it go, but why does the living state require it at all? And, and when, when you look at what biological systems have to do just to persist, 
you know, uh, uh, in terms of in terms of physics, in terms of chemistry, in terms of of um, interacting with an environment um, in order to get exchanges of matter and energy, they all have to sense. They all have to remember. They all have to learn. They all have to make decisions under uncertainty um, and sometimes in the face of conflicting uh, messages from the environment. And when you start looking at this, and they all have to value what they're what they're um, experiencing as good for them or bad for them. And when you start looking at the number of things they have to do just to get just to live, it's like, right. well, excuse me. Sensing, uh, perception, memory, learning, decision making, uh, valuing—that those are all cognitive. Those are all cognitive things. They're not just machine-like things. <laughs> they're, right. they're 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 intrinsically cognitive. So, from from my standpoint, um, I mean, the, the the view I came to is that you can't stay alive and do what we do in being alive without cognition. And this is actually not a very modern view. You know, this is this is a view that's been around since the time of Darwin. I know. I still hear it all the time. Everyone thinks that random mutation and natural selection run everything and uh, there's no intelligence in nature. And yeah, a lot of people, unfortunately, I think, think that this very day. Well, um, as has been said, science progresses one funeral at a time. And I would put to you that in, a, in another 10 to 20 years, people will look back on this time and those kinds of views and go, what were they thinking? Well, again, what's the, uh, the current state? What's the most advanced, I don't know, form of thinking? What's the most permissive form of thinking about cognition? Do people think that uh, bacteria have their own level of cognition or human cells or uh, at the level of the organ? Is there a separate awareness well, or cognition? Like, what's, you know, What do you think? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on board with uh, Mike Levin on the notion that um, every cell Every cell in a um, multicellular body inherits to a greater or lesser extent some of the cogn cognitive legacy of the first cells. So they are not they are not tabula rasa that basically take their marching orders entirely from uh, the organism in which they are embedded. They have they have some degrees of freedom to make decisions about whether they should, you know, what, what proteins to express at a particular time based on, um, uh, based on the context and, and whether they, you know, whether it's time to, you know, suicide <laughs> uh, because they, they might be uh, uh, endangering um, the tissue. Um, I, I suspect also that 
that cancer, um, I know this is a very unpopular view, that cancer probably has, in the background of cancer, there is probably quite a bit to, to do with the multicellular program that involves a lot of decision-making at various steps of development and, and that those go haywire and that the cancer is like a part of the body that just says, I've got to be me. So do you think cancer is a uh, separate life form that has its own homeostatic drive? Uh, and if so, at no. what point in uh, cell replication, if I have five cancer cells versus five million or five million, is there different levels of cognition you think in those in those you know size tumors or masses? I, I don't think I don't think that it's different cognitive levels. I think that they're all working off the same. You know whether it's a normal whether it's a normal cell whether it's a, a cancer cell they're all working off the the potential that the genome provides the the expression potential that the genome provides and that that what what is expressed is extraordinarily context dependent and has has everything to do with history of conditioning of that particular tissue history of conditioning of those particular cells and what they've been able to achieve in terms of um, marshalling resources for their own self-preservation and expansion, but I don't yeah, but think if, if we see, I, I don't think it's an or I don't think it's an organism within an organism. I think it's part of an part of an organism that has basically gone wrong. I just saw a you know a YouTube video. I think his name is uh, Stephen Axelrod or something like that. He's you know he's a, he's into mushrooms. You know, so he's photographed tons of them in Australia. And I look at these mushrooms and I see some that literally look like my lungs. You know, the same shape. I yeah. saw one that looked like the uh, paddle of a whale or a tail fin of a whale. I yeah. saw one that looked literally like a turkey, the exact same body plan and everything. So yeah. it made me wonder, is you know, are there different levels of knowledge? Is there a biological knowledge that, let's say, all living cells have that allow them to recapitulate these forms across different kingdoms? Now, how could the mushrooms make these forms when these forms are in, let's say, higher animals? But yet they did. You know, what, why yeah. is... Um, you know, why do I, when I see trees and, you know, in the winter, it looks just like my lungs, you know, the branching of the tree and everything. Why are these forms, why are these forms uh, repeated, recapitulated in so many different creatures? Well, I would imagine that has a lot to do with the nature of biophysics and biochemistry and how, and how atoms join and how molecules come together and the, the sort of option space that exists for um, multicellular aggregates. I don't think that I don't think that there's um, an underlying a biological consciousness. I think that, with all due deference to Jung, I you know I I find his ideas really interesting, but I I don't think that that will get us very far in a in a biological experimental program. If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Without looking at the specific, the specific growing conditions, the context, et cetera, of each and every organism, which is extraordinarily difficult to do. Well, like, you know, I'm conscious, hopefully. Again, if, if I look at my liver, does it have any agency? <laughs> does it have any, any sense of self? You know, do the cells that comprise my liver say we are liver cells and you are other and therefore you know there's, there's cell-to-cell communication between you know liver pancreas liver brain etc 
I mean, how far down does some level of cognition go in your estimation? I mean, again, starting with me, I'm, I can think, yeah. you know, but uh, where does it stop? I think that if your liver had, you know, had a imperative to just be itself, then it would create, it would probably create a problem for the rest of the body. I think that there are, you know, there are such things as holes and parts. And I think that um, it's in many respects, it's safer to err on the side of holes rather than parts. I am, I'm not a panpsychist. I don't think that, that rocks are, are cognitive. Um, I think that, I think that, Cognition is something that, that living systems do, and I suspect it doesn't extend to viruses, but I don't know. I, my, my view of viruses is more, I'm, I have a tendency to favor the view that viruses are more stripped down, um, highly optimized rec- replicators rather than the precursors of living cells. I think that, I think that they're cells that just got, you know, that stripped down to just the basis, the the uh, the business of uh, replication. Well, what about bacteria? You know, an individual bacteria in my gut uh, versus a biofilm in my gut. Let's say, uh, you know, I don't know, acidophilus. You know, I have well, one acidophilus in my gut. Uh, it's a single cell organism, or if I have acidophilus that has made a biofilm in my, you know, my colon, my sigmoid colon, let's say, how does that biofilm perceive itself and how does it act? Does it have agency at the biofilm level? At the individual bacteria level, you know, what do you think is going on cognitively? At, at both, at, it, it has uh, it has agency at both levels. Uh, one of the things that really con- uh, convinced me when I was uh, starting to do my research convinced me that there was something interesting going on at the single cell level was when I saw a a, fi- uh, a video of a cell joining a biofilm and. Mm. This this sing, this single cell was swimming along, and it sort of like tried out one site and decided it didn't want to be there. It tried out another site and didn't want to be there, and then tried out a third site and it incorporated there. Now, some kind of decision making is being made. You know, some sort of decision is being made about yep. where the optimal conditions for that cell are. Okay, and so. But once that cell becomes part of the biofilm, it, it is acting very like a cell within a multicellular organism. Now, it can leave. It can leave if it, if it can, if it's not too embedded in, in, in exopolysaccharide matrix. But it, once it's in the biofilm, it's, it's genetic expression um, the proteins that it makes, the kind of behaviors that it can engage in, are determined by the group. Well, there and, are cheaters, though, in any collection of, uh, you know, of organisms. Like, you know, if you look at quorum sensing, quorum sensing to me is not just uh, this molecule just randomly goes out there. I mean, there's counting. And there's, like Bonnie Bassler says, there's self versus other. You know, a certain bacteria will know, okay, how many of us are there, quote unquote, versus other. You know, another strain or another species, and activity is is predicated based on that counting. Like you know, here's another thing. Um, I call it bacterial economics. So in your <laughs> gut, right? But I'm just you know, I'm just uh, just speculating. In, in, no, that's in my gut, in, in my gut, I have like you know my human cells, and they want uh, a certain metabolite, right? 
And the bacteria that, let's say a bacteria that, that eats some of the food I eat, they produce a metabolite and they trade it with my cells. My cells give them glucose. They give uh, butyrate, I don't know, short-chain fatty acids to my cells, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. where's the calculation? Is it one-to-one, one molecule of uh, glucose in exchange for one of butyrate? Or is it three-to-one or seven-to-one? Or And who makes up these? Like, from where do these economics come from? And I call it bacterial economics because who and how is making that market decision on the pricing of it, essentially? Well, that is a very good question. And that is something that should be investigated. We are at the very beginnings of, of looking at decision-making in microbes. I mean, the, it, it's, this is, and basically most of the research is in, into ascertaining the molecular um, outputs and stimuli and regulators of bacteria, but we're really not looking at behavior as behavior that much yet. And that's one of the reasons, that's the thing that I take um, a lot of comfort in, is that we are now, it, now it appears, based on the, the, um, the special issue that uh, we just put out in uh, Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, um, it now looks as though we are at a point where scientists who work in different simple organisms like social amoeba, like slime molds, like, uh, like bacteria, uh, particularly social bacteria, and most of them are social. I, I don't think we know of any that really aren't social. And not other non-neural organisms, including plants, there, people are beginning to say, okay, let's take a look and let's, let's see what they can do. And how does this relate to the cognitive capacities that humans have? And, and what are the mechanisms? And are they shared? And do they run off similar peptides? Are the neuropeptides um, in the, the, that run in neural systems, are they similar to the peptides that work in um, non-neural si- systems? These are the questions that are starting to be asked and investigated, and that's extraordinarily encouraging, in my view. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, if you look at sperm and egg, there seems to be a choice happening. You know, the egg is discerning something about yeah. the various sperm that have gotten close enough to, to yeah. try to get in, and it yeah. allows one in. So there seems to be a selection process. So it's, it's evaluating this information that it's gaining somehow through sensing, and then it's saying, all right, you're the guy. Come on. Yeah, you know, let's amend. Absolutely. So there's, to me, that, that says that even at the individual cellular level, there's uh, some level of cognition. Again, that Mike and I would say that that is because these uh, initial capacities evolved in single cells. Remember, you know, single cells ruled the planet for, you know, 2.5 billion years, 3 billion years plus. And well, is there is there really such a thing as a true single cell organism? Because you know, like the stromatolites from like three point oh, eight billion years ago was, and eighty percent of the time, yeah. bacteria yeah. and biofilms. Yeah. So maybe yeah. Yeah. there really is no such thing as a single cell organism. Yeah. I, I think that I mean there is if you're a paramecium. Um, there is if you're if you're a, a ciliate. You know, protists are not necessarily uh, social. I don't know their, uh, I don't know their sociality, but I have always been um, very skeptical of the whole notion of um, selfish replicators and selfish 
selfish cells and that that cooperation was the big challenge to explain because it ran against everything Darwin said. And I, I you know, I that wasn't my reading of Darwin and that wasn't what seemed to be apparent everywhere in nature. So um, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's if there was a single cell, it didn't stay single long. I just. You know, I also saw an example in that mushroom video about the forest, and they called the the wood wide web. You know how mycelium link all the trees and allow, I guess, behaviors like you know. So I thought, well, it's kind of like me. You know, it's a it's a holobiont to the whole forest. When is a tree just a tree? When is it part of this network? Is it both? I guess I guess it's it's the analog is in people. You know, like I'm a separate individual, but I'm also part of a family. And I'm also, uh, you know, I live in the state of Texas and I also live in Austin. So I'm a Texan. I'm an Austinite. I'm also part of my family. I'm also an individual. So I'm all these things at once. So I, I just wonder, uh, I don't know. I don't even know where it's leading, but just things that went well, in my head. Well, no, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. And where I hope it's leading is that we will come, you know, we humans will come to appreciate that we share an extraordinary kinship with the rest of the natural world. Instead of running around like heads on sticks, thinking we're, you know, absolutely independent of the rest of the natural world, coming to some understanding that that we are not in a touchy-feely way, but in a really pragmatic way, we are intrinsically linked to every to to the living things on this planet, and we are making a real mess of things. And with, without any sense of, of kinship, of relationship to these other, these other organisms that when you look at them very, very closely, they're much more like us. And we are, and, and we have far fewer degrees of freedom than we think. You know, we are more like them and they're more like us. And this is not to say that there aren't, you know, massive gulfs in, in, in terms of complexity between us and the non-neural living world, but especially single-celled creatures. But we are made of the same stuff. We oh. use the same mechanisms. We, we depend on you know, signal, transduc- signal transduction and, and oscillation and, and networks and, and all, these, all these mechanisms that are the same, that they operate similarly in bacteria that they do as they do in brains. And they use, they have different, they have different hardware, but they're doing similar things. Yeah. Well, what would you say is the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term senome, you know, like for a person in sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, et cetera, it's our five senses. What do you think the senome of a bacteria is? Is it mechanical um, transduction? I, is it yeah, chemosensing? Yeah, yeah, no, I wouldn't use, uh, personally, I wouldn't use senome. I would use an older term that, uh, that was coined by Jakob uh, von Oechskuhl called Umwelt. It's like, what is the sensorium that creates the world of an organism? And I would say that if you're talking about an E. coli, and an e. Coli, e. coli is not a particularly brainy bacterium in terms of its um, ability to do a lot of things and um, having a huge uh, sensorium. But you, you've got, you know, you'd have you'd have the ability to sense probably at least on the order of about thirty 
um, 30 uh, states of affairs, um, which is fairly complex. And you have the ability to know whether you were, um, whether it was, it was better to be hyperflagellated in a particular situation or unflagellated in a particular situation. So it would be very limited, but there would be things that there would be things that um, that would be part of its world. You know how how uh, challenging is the gel-like structure of of water for me at this particular time, and how many members of uh, of my type are, or things like me, are around me at this particular time. Am I am I being capable of being uh, fed and sustained? Do we have to mount a defense against a, a host's immune system? There are all kinds of decisions that have to be made at any time. Right. I don't know. So what uh, what are the questions that are like you know driving you insane that you want to figure out about cognition? Like what specifically are you trying to figure out? Well, I'm really interested in valence and how a system determines that something is valuable for it or aversive for it, or, you know, something that's good for it or bad for it or not worth uh, bothering about at all. And I'm also interested in how stress responses are mounted and how stress, the response to stressors sort of evolved in lockstep with cognition. I, I became, when I was looking at um, stress responses in bacteria, they seemed to be the most cognitively rich or demanding um, situations in which bacteria had to function. And then when I started looking in the psychological literature, I found that there was a lot of evidence for uh, the co-evolution of uh, stress responses and cognition. So that's what I'm interested in. And I'm also interested in the evolution of things that start out as stressors that, bec- that, are, that are co-opted by evolution to become things that are good for the organism. A classic example would be nitric oxide, which is a toxin that is produced by metabolism that is something that has to be counteracted by antioxidants. And somehow or other, nitric oxide was co-opted by life in the, in the process of becoming multicellular constitutively multicellular so now that it's one now it's a leading signaling molecule in multicellular development and i don't know how it went from being a poison to being something that was absolutely necessary for multicellular development i i find that fascinating and i don't know how it happens well i would think cognition is a requirement of defense of self you know of uh preservation of self I mean, you're, you know, my phenotype explores my environment, but it also represents, again, defense of self. Yeah. And, you know, my immunity comes along with it. So my whole, everything about me is geared towards that, you know, continuing living, like it's adapting, you know, responding to stresses. Uh, so yeah. I would think I would marshal everything I have and, you know, keep me alive as number one, you know, I would guess for any creature. So I would think it would, it would use everything it could to keep itself alive. So cognition would be necessary Absolutely. to do that. And that is the thing that makes organisms different from everything else. They not only want to replicate, they want to persist as systems. 
And that is profoundly weird. In in the 19th century, this was an early 20th century, actually up to the this, uh, middle of the 20th century, um, there were huge debates about vitalism. And, mm. and most of them were really wrong-headed and, and became quite like straw, straw arguments, straw men. Um, but there is something profoundly odd about, about living systems, really strong striving to persist. Stuart Kaufman first raised this issue in uh, his book, Investigations, and he called it agency. And I think that that is, is, is as good a term as anything. I mean, how did a physico-chemical system become an agent? And I, I think that investigating that particular lacuna in our understanding, that um, gap big enough to drive a Mack truck through, is going to keep me fascinated for a very long time. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, take forever with you on this, but, you know, like when a when a cow is born, it struggles to its feet within seconds and can nurse and yeah. run around. Where is where yeah. that knowledge, you know? Uh, when a yeah. baby is born, it can nurse and cry yeah. and grasp and all that. Where is that knowledge? How could it? Yeah. There's no way that it, it, it has to come from some sort of cellular memory. And it may not just be in the genes. Like, like you mentioned, Mike Levin, you know, he's doing <clears throat> experiments where they're taking, I guess, you know, xenopus frog cells and... Uh, yeah, yeah coaching them to make all these shapes that they never normally would make and yet they're doing it you know so there's there seems to be different types of knowledge there's like cellular or biological knowledge there's knowledge that comes from you know interacting with other creatures you know of your own species uh experiential knowledge uh, epigenetic knowledge i mean it seems like there's a whole bunch there is and you know you really nailed it when you mentioned descartes because there is a lot of Cartesian thinking still around. And I'm not talking about dualism. I'm talking this whole machine notion that, that living things are, you know, machines. Now, if, if, if you want to say that they are systems with, within systems, within systems that have mechanisms for doing particular things, that's fine. But if you're, if you're looking at them, like they are machine, like they are like the machines that we produce for our, either entertainment or benefit and that you know that, that that's the way living things are that is just absolutely off the planet it's just so wrong it is so wrong and so knowledge has to be built in knowledge is built into the genome of every creature knowledge is 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 created epigenetically through the 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 life cycle and reproduction of creatures i mean how long did it take us to actually get our heads around epigenetic inheritance you know when i first started looking into this stuff i was you know i i I couldn't believe that it was dogma that that there are there there's no inheritance of acquired characteristics you know everybody was saying to me all my all my philosophical cognate uh, um colleagues were saying look you know that's like that's lysenkoism you know it's it's wrong lamarck lost you know darwin won and and now yeah yeah and it was why would something that really really desires to persist why would it not use one of the most useful things in in its in its in its armamentarium which is basically learning and right. you know the you well know, learning memory 
know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you can't remember everything. You know, you only remember the stuff that's really, really, really important. And uh, I, I, we're living in very exciting times. I mean, things are things are more fluid than they have been in a long time. And it's I'm, you know, I'm really excited about. Mike's idea of even though you know obviously there you know there are ethical questions around it and all that sort of stuff but I really I think the idea of using xenobots for ascertaining what the absolute minimum cognitive toolkit is 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 a very interesting idea yeah. because we don't know what what the absolute what the absolute minimum is for getting around. We know that that even even an E. coli, a Myxococcusanthus, a, a Bacillus subtilis, they are actually very sophisticated. They have they have a lot going on. So they are not minimal. They, they something's got to be more minimal than that in the um, progress of the evolution of cognition. So. Being able to craft xenobots that can that can demonstrate these these capacities in a in a very limited form would be very very useful. Okay, so what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go if they have a cognitive bone in their body and interest? I have a number of articles that I've written that are available on academia.edu and ResearchGate. Uh, there's the double issue that a team of us edited for philosophical transactions that's got a lot of interesting stuff in it um if you want to sort of get a get a look at the ground floor and i'm writing a book this year oh, okay what, what's your book going to be about it's basically going to bring together the work that i started with my thesis when i wrote because my background is in journalism i you know i i am a writer by trade and when I wrote my thesis, my three examiners said this should become a book as soon as possible. And it, it's now 14 years later. It's, it's time to do it. So that's what I'm doing this year. Excellent. Okay. Well, it's been really great talking to you and uh, going back and forth and all that. And I'm glad that we have a, a similar mind, but uh, you know, there's a lot more to be explored. So I appreciate you coming. Uh, Thank it- you. It's it's wonderful to talk to somebody who whose vista is so broad. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.